I wanted to take some time in the month of November to do a couple topical things. December, we're going to get into focusing on the first coming of Christ, the Christmas story, why did Christ need to come, how he came, how he was proven the Messiah, and so on and so forth. So this month, I just want to take a few times, uh, a few weeks, and do some topical discussions. Um, This week, we're going to focus on Christian deconstruction. Now, many of you may not have heard that topic, but I'll tell you it's not new, but it is very prevalent in our culture and is growing more prevalent around the world. Christian deconstruction, in a nutshell, is how do I deconstruct my faith by breaking down the pillars of what Christianity stands upon, or any religion for that matter. So it's taking a secular view, a cultural view, and putting that and placing that ahead of a scriptural authority. There was a Pew Forum that was put out, and it says only 65% of people in America now consider themselves a Christian, which is down since 2009, 12%. Right now, in America, over a little bit over one in four people claim no religion. They have no religion at all. They have no leaning one way or another, whether it's atheistic or agnostic, whether it's, I just have nothing to do with anything. I'm just independent. That is up 17% since 2009. In 10 years, we have seen a jump of 17%. Of the 65% of Christians that identify themselves such way, 43% identify themselves as Protestant. 40% of millennials are of no religion. That is their stance. And of those 43 who are Protestant, only 25% consider themselves evangelical Christian. And looking at those who are born again, that 25% of evangelicals who say they are Christians, that number, that percentage has not changed since 2009. So in 10 years' time, with all these other changes, those who are born-again believers calling themselves Protestant Christian evangelicals, that number has not changed. It is maintained. That should be encouraging. But where do we see the drop then? The drop and decline we see is in mainline Protestant denominations, in those churches whom biblical preaching and biblical authority is not presented. The gospel is not presented clearly. It is in these mainline churches that we are seeing the biggest decline and the quickest. One interesting fact, the same forum company did a uh, forum over in the United Kingdom. In all of history that we've seen in England and in the Church of England, it's always been a very religious country. As of 2019, 53% of England is non-religious. First time in history we have seen more of this country's population claim no religion than any religion at all. So around the world, in a snapshot, we see that Christianity is growing at 1.27% every year. Where? Africa and Asia now have more Christians than North America. That is a sad statement, but a great statement. We see Christianity growing and arising in persecuted countries. We see that as these countries are finally being delivered the word of God, they are responding with hearts. And we see a country such as ours that is privileged to have a Bible readily available to anybody who wants one in many different translations, 
many different styles and flavors. It's available on the internet. It's available on your phone. It's available in apps. And yet it's in our country that we are seeing one of the biggest and quickest declines in biblical Christianity. So this morning, we're going to look at that. This morning, we're going to discuss it. I want it to be a little bit more informal this morning. We're going to talk about this topic, but I want it to be understood. I want some communication. So as we see a decline, we must ask ourselves why. And as we finish the book of Titus, I think we've gone through that answer of why the last few months. We're looking at a time when we're not discipling our children. We are looking at a time where accountability is at a low point for those in the pulpit, for those in Christian leadership. We're looking at a time when it's okay to be and choose whatever you want. Not only are we taking down the biblical pillars of authority, we're taking down the biblical mandate of marriage, the biblical mandate of male and female. We are turning all these things, and then we wonder, why are people running away from the church? Because we see hypocrisy rampant in the church. The mainline churches, and I'm not picking on churches in general, but in our culture, we see these big mainline churches, and it's not all big ones. They're small churches just like ours, but they're preaching tolerance. They're preaching acceptance. They're preaching unconditional love, which is not biblical in the sense that they use it. So this morning, I'd like you guys to turn into your Bibles, and I know you guys have Bibles, so that's good. I like hearing pages, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to read one verse. And we're going to kind of jump off of that and into our study this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And many of you know the church of Corinth was a very hostile area. It was a very discombobulated congregation. It had its struggles. And yet it's not a whole lot different than what we see today. So 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3 says this. But I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So here we have the Apostle Paul speaking to the church of Corinth, defending his apostleship, because all of a sudden in the church of Corinth, we have all these different teachers. We have all these different people coming in and teaching different things about Christ, teaching different things about a different gospel. And Paul says here, I am afraid that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of Christ. Why? Because it's not difficult. Christianity is very simple. It is very plain, and yet, it's, it's so great that our minds can't fully comprehend it either. It's as a simplicity that a child can understand, and the complexity that even a, a wonderful, well-minded adult can't comprehend all the truths, because God is so great. What's that simple song we sing, our God is so great, so strong, and so mighty? Well, it's true, and in God's word, we see this portrayed over and over again. And yet, sometimes we try to throw in, well, it's got to be so complex, we add to it. Or we subtract from it because, eh, I don't like that part. Or it's hard to digest. Things aren't always easy to sit on. Truths aren't always easy to understand. But we are not to turn away from the simplicity and the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came, who died, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, and brought forgiveness of sins. So we see in our culture now, and in the culture of Christian deconstruction, that doubt and disillusionment are now the new fad. 
Okay, so to doubt is now considered a virtue. It's kind of interesting. And a lot of the people that, that pull this, they say, oh, look at Doubting Thomas. That was his nickname, and not rightfully so, but we do see a time where Thomas is like, unless I see. Okay, yes, he did. But what did Christ say in response? Blessed are those who have not received and yet received and believed. Okay, Doubting Thomas was... Unfortunately, we put that label on him, and so now, okay, we can use that as a justification. Now we're going to doubt everything in Scripture. Unless God comes down here and proves it to me, eh, I can't take it. So doubt and disillusionment is, in our culture, on the rise. It's okay to ask questions. But the problem we see with Christian deconstruction is that it has to fit my culture. It has to answer all my questions. I cannot leave my question unanswered. That's not okay. Not only that, but it's not relevant to my culture. The Bible was not written for my day and age. So we see that as questions arise, instead of a heart looking for a true answer, we're looking at hearts that are looking to justify an action, looking to justify a lifestyle, looking to justify this is my position. What does Paul say? Do not be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. It starts and it ends with Christ. It starts and ends with the authority of God's word. So the other excuse that we see people using is, I believe that, and this is also taught a lot in churches, is if I pray, God will answer my prayers. Now that is true. God always answers prayer. May not be in the way that we want to hear the answer though. It may be a no. It may be a wait. It may be a yes. So a lot of people that we've seen in this movement are those that have, I prayed and prayed that my mom would get better and she died. God's not big enough. God didn't stop it, therefore God's not big enough to meet my need, to answer my prayer. So they throw everything that's in the Bible under the bus because my answer wasn't what I wanted. This is where it begins. It begins with a heart that's accusing God of not being big enough, of not being sovereign. And yet we know from Scripture, God is. God is absolutely sovereign. God could choose to bring healing. Yet, for reasons we don't always know and may never know in this life, he chooses not to. And we have to be willing to accept God's sovereignty. Prayer gets everything until it doesn't. And this fact is what people are struggling with. The Christian life is also always good. If I'm a Christian, life is always going to go my way. Things are going to be easy. We're on easy street. We hear that a lot, do we not in our culture? And yet this is also what's turning so many young people away from Christianity. Because they say, well, this is what you're preaching, but I see what my life looks like. My life is hard. It's difficult. I struggle. I wrestle with issues. I wrestle with pride. I wrestle with... Uh, lust. I wrestle with all these things, and it doesn't add up because people are saying, if you're a Christian, life is smooth. It goes well. That is not true. We are leaving the simplicity of Christ. Christ, above all people, did not have an easy life. He was despised. He was rejected by men. He was beaten. He was crucified. Is that easy? No. <laughs> if we look at the medical background of the crucifixion, it was the most brutal and barbaric thing anybody had to endure. So we are turning now into this liberal theology. It's a lot of like uh, what the old-time Gnosticism was about wisdom. It's all about knowledge of knowing. It's also a mysticism. It's a spiritual journey. Now everybody can get on their own board and take a spiritual journey. 
This is where it's leading me. Where is it taking you? What are your feelings on this? What are, where have you transcended to a better enlightenment? This is what this theology of Christian deconstruction is pushing. It's an experience. Everybody's looking for a Moses in the burning bush experience. That was very unique in scripture. I don't know of any other place in the Bible where somebody else met God in a burning bush that didn't burn. We all have our own experiences, yes, in life. We all meet God in different ways. Why? Because we're not all the same. Mike's experience is not going to be mine. Mark's experience is not going to be mine. Are we going to share things in common? Yes, because in Christ, there are common things that we're going to have. We're going to have issues with life, with people. We're going to have hardships. We're going to have sickness. We're going to have deaths. We're going to have all these different things. But what are we to do? We're to pull together in Christian love and unity and uphold one another in love and prayer and in fellowship. So now they are labeling this, Christian deconstruction is now labeled the New Reformation. This is the title that they are giving to it. This should speak volumes to us. This should speak huge volumes of warning. This is a movement they intend to push hard. This is a movement that they intend to say, everything is okay. Let me use Rob Bell as an, ex- as an example. Many of you familiar with Rob Bell, who he was, who he is? No, he's a pastor of a big church. And he came out with a book called Love Wins. This was a f- quite a few years ago, back in the middle 2000s. And Rob Bell's idea and his teaching about Love Wins is that everything is okay because Christ loves unconditionally. Let me explain that more. You are okay to be in a homosexual relationship because it's about a monogamous relationship, not about what's right and wrong. It is no longer about morality because Jesus preached that it was two people in a relationship committed to that relationship without sexual sin outside of that relationship. This is what he's pushing. He's also pushing there is no eternal hell because that goes against a God who loves. How can a eternal punishment an infinite punishment be for a finite creature. It doesn't add up. It doesn't work. So we see this being pushed in the big churches in America, and we wonder why our kids are streaming to it, and we are wondering why the church is falling apart. It's because we're allowing these truths to sneak in unawares, and we're not discipling our young ones to count the cost. So there are six main points to Christian deconstruction or deconstruction of any faith. The first one is to first attack the pillar of authority, biblical scriptural authority, the inherency of God's word. That is the first pillar that they have to attack. God's word cannot stand. God's word is not complete. God's word is not totally truthful. There are errors in scripture. There are places where scripture doesn't line up. It contradicts itself. You guys, the church says that you can stand upon this alone and it's a total revelation of God for everything you need to do in life as a handbook. God's word was not written as a handbook. God's spirit gives us everything we need for life and godliness. There are principles there. It will speak to truth in life. But am I going to look up, how do I pass my math exam? No. God did not write it for that reason. And yet, that is the truth that they're trying to attack. They're trying to take this and say, oh, this, you guys say this speaks to everything. This is totally true. Well, over the years, there have been a lot of different volumes of the Bible, a lot of different translations of the Bible. Not all of them are good. I'll be honest with you. There's some out there that scare me to death. 
There's Bibles out there, I use that term loosely, that are gender neutral. God is not God the Father, he's something. It is not man, it is people. There are so many different ways that man is corrupted, but the scriptures in the original text were perfect. They were given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the people that he chose to write them down. God directed and man wrote. God's word is perfect. The second thing that they have to topple is the topic of hell. Hell is not real. There is no eternal punishment. Not only that, but there's no way that it's eternal. It's, you're just done. That's it. That's one, that's one view that they have. It's also, culturally, the scriptures don't fit. So I seen an interview of Rob Bell, and he was also talking with a guy, Andrew something or other, I forget his last name. He's a theologian over in England. Really, really neat guy. And they're having this discussion about hell, of why Rob Bell says there is no hell. And he says, well, because culturally, Christ and Paul and the prophets and apostles, the Old Testament's irrelevant because it was written for a whole other culture, but it's not relevant anymore because our culture has changed. It has evolved. So if they lived in our time frame, they wouldn't be saying the things that they said back then. That's his argument. It's a scary place to be of people teaching your children that Christ's words were incorrect because he doesn't live in our culture and he didn't evolve into what God is, is God is unconditionally loving. What, what is that uh, one thing? Come as you are, right? Yes, we come as sinful creatures. We have a need for Christ. Why? Because we are sinful. His theology is, no, we're accepted in Christ because God loves unconditionally. Which leads us to the next one, substitutionary atonement. They have to topple that, even specifically penal substitutionary atonement, meaning that Christ had to take the penalty of God's full wrath against sin. So, they use that to say, God is hateful. Christ is there to save us from God's anger and his wrath and his hatred. So, Christ is there just as a fill-in. He's there to save us from a horrible God. So they use that to say, well, that doesn't work. So this doctrine is no longer relevant because Christ is loving, and God is loving, and if God is loving, there is no need for a penalty. This is the arguments that are going on. Fourthly, suffering in the world. This is a big, one of the biggest topics out there. If God is sovereign, why do people suffer? If God is sovereign, why does man continue to get sick? Why is there war? Why are there plagues? Why is there famine? If, if man suffers, God is not loving. That is the biggest argument. I've also heard the expression, there are no atheists in a foxhole. There's a reason for that. When man hits that life or death moment, they're going to call out for something. Why? Because God has put in the heart and mind of every man that he is who he is. He has given it through, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, through all creation, God has shown himself. Why? Because man is without excuse. As much as man wants to have an excuse, we have none. Because God is holy. God is perfect. Fifthly, end times. This is one of the biggest pillars that they're hitting on. Why? Because so many people have said that they know when the world is going to end. So many people have said, if we look here, they've made a prediction or a prophecy over and over again. that Oh, Christ is coming back here. Christ is coming back there. And it doesn't happen. They say, the church is full of fluff. They have no idea what they're talking about. Too many people have cried that way. And life continues as it always has. 
Paul was saying that in Titus. Be careful of that. To Timothy, be careful that people use that argument. Life is always going as it is. I'm going to have you turn Matthew chapter 24 really quick. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. Jesus says this, That day and the hour no one yet knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Son. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And he goes on to continue it also in Mark's Gospel in chapter 13 and verse 32. Also hits on that in this, not even Christ knows. But there is something that we do know. He is coming. We are told he goes in after that on the parable of the ten virgins. Be ready at all times for the master to come. Right? It's like he said, it's like a master going away and the slaves are left behind. They don't know when he's coming back, but they know he is. We need to give hope. We need to teach young ones God's word is true. The last thing that they have to topple is the topic of the church. Brothers and sisters, that is what is falling apart in our country and in many countries around the world. The church is not standing upon the purity of God's word and it looks just like the world. Too often we see churches that are compromising on issues. We are hardcore against homosexuality, but we're temperate on cohabitation. Mark, you and I have had that conversation many times. And I know you've had that conversation with people in that lifestyle. And what is your answer? What is your reply? I would say this to my children as well as to you. And that's where the church needs to be. Not the hypocrisy of, oh, I can't believe you're a homosexual. You need to, like, you're going to burn. No. We need to approach people with compassion, with love, with understanding, knowing that they are lost, giving them the love of Christ, but standing firm upon the principles of God's word that sin is sin. God is not judging sin on a scale, on a sliding scale. Ah, you're okay here, but man, stay away from this, right? That's not how God is. God is holy, so sin is all the same. God cannot live in the presence of sin. God hates sin. So in the light of in the book of Titus that we just finished, we learned about discipling the older to the younger. Men teaching men. Men teaching men to be biblical men. Men, women teaching your young ones how to be a woman, how to love your husbands, how to love your children, how to be workers at home, how to be faithful. That is what the church is about. Teaching the next generation that where I stand, one day, one of you has to stand there. We're not going to live forever. We're all getting old. We're all going to grow up in one day. If the Lord tarries, we're going to die. We need to have those that are younger take the place of those who are older. How do you do that? By training and teaching them to stand where you stand. Not because of who I am, but because of who Christ is. So one of the issues that the church is up against with this topic of Christian deconstructionism is they say that it's hard to be openly authentic. It's hard to ask those hard questions. Why? Because the church labels. Because the church is hypocrisy. It's a hypocrite. It says, oh, how dare you bring that up instead of teaching. 
They crave a non-judgmental place to ask the difficult questions. Is life easy? No. Are there going to be hard questions that come up? Absolutely. Is everything straightforward to a young person? No. But if we're not willing to sit down in love and compassion and teach and disciple and help them wrestle with wisdom through these difficult issues, we are going to push them away. We are going to push our young ones off to the side if we're not willing to sit down. Hey, ask whatever question you have. Let's not go (gasps) and have our knee-jerk reaction. Let's take time. Let's be transparent. Let's help our kids understand, hey, I've wrestled with those issues. Or I've been in your shoes. Or you know what? This is what somebody helped me through. How did you get there? Obviously in age-appropriate ways. They also use the excuse to follow this path, that since the church is going to be judgmental, well, you know what? There's other people like me out there that aren't. They're accepting of who I am and where I'm at. So I can talk to them about these questions. Well, they're just as lost as they are. It's the blind leading the blind. The church is called to be a light. It's the failure of the church, of the modern church, to parent and to disciple. I've said it multiple times already. So what is our response? What is to be our response and our responsibility to this? Transparency. I've said that already. We need to be transparent with people. We need to let them know, hey, just because I'm a Christian, I'm not on a pedestal over here. I'm not different than you. Now, salvation has set me apart for Christ, but I'm not different. I'm still a human. I still struggle. I still wear this tent of flesh. I still have frailties. I'm not perfect. Discipleship. I'm gonna, it's going to be one thing you're going to hear from me all the time. Discipleship. It's so important. It's so key to the growth and maturity of the church. We need discipleship. I seek out men older and wiser than myself. There's a group of pastors that meets once a month in Holland to wrestle and discuss these issues. I get together with that group. I've been blessed with the opportunity to do that. And it's helpful. It's so helpful to be able to hear wisdom from men that have walked the faith much longer than I have. But that's what we need to do. That illustration, taking from the left and bringing people to the right. We're on that constant journey, moving in maturity towards Christ until Christ comes or until he takes us home. Admitting we don't know everything. When somebody asks you a question and you don't know the answer, don't make something up. Don't say, ha, I know what it is when you're talking out of the side of your face. I don't know is a very acceptable answer, but follow it up with, I'll find out or I'll look for it, or I'll help you find the answer. Don't just leave people of, I don't know, go figure it out. That's not what they need. They're looking for somebody that's honest and transparent, but willing to work with them, willing to come alongside and help them grow, help them wrestle with these issues. Also, don't be judgmental. Don't be so quick to judge people based on who they are, based on what they look like, based on their lifestyle. Love people as Christ loved people. Christ was oftentimes ridiculed because he went to those people. He ate supper with the tax collectors. He ate supper with sinners. He rubbed shoulders with the lowly, with the sick. Why? Because it's the sick who needs a doctor, not the healthy. Why? Because he was seeking the lost. Why? Because God is about people, real people, honest people, people that have sinned. God is calling each of us to himself. Also, one of the biggest struggles we need to learn, stay out of politics with Christianity. Don't say, because I'm a Christian, 
that person over there because he's this label is why I go. No. Vote your conscience. Vote biblically. But leave politics out of Christianity. Yes, we have an op- obligation in our country to vote. But don't bring your whole biblical perspective back to politics. That drives so many people away. We're going to sit the rest of our time in the book of First Timothy. So if you would turn there. Well, most of the rest of our time, I should say. Let me make sure. Okay. So First Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to see that we're not the only ones struggling with these issues. This isn't new. God's not caught unawares by Christian deconstruction. God is not caught unawares by people leaving the church. God is not caught unawares by the church teaching false doctrine, by people coming in and upsetting whole families. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. This is what Paul says, but the goal of our but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is why we have the Bible to help us in that journey. Verse 19 and 20 of the same chapter, he says to Timothy, Keep keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Is that not what we're talking about? People throwing their faith away because of an issue or because, you know what, I'm going to start questioning and now I don't have answers, so we're just going to throw it all out the window. It's throwing the baby out with the bathwater, that old expression, right? And he says, among them are Hermineus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. There were people in the church that were doing just what we're talking about, right? First Timothy in chapter 4, flip over there, one page over, verse 15 and 16. This is Paul talking to Timothy after telling him that the threat of apostasy is real, it's coming, it's in the church already. He says this, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Why? Because you are to persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, he's not saying, Timothy, because you believe your family is covered by your belief. He's saying because you believe and because you are practicing these things, because you are speaking sound doctrine, You are ensuring salvation to those who hear and respond to the gospel. You are not teaching false doctrine. You are not teaching falsely. You are teaching things of life, taking pains and being absorbed in them so that those who see your life and hear what you say, see that they line up with the word of God and respond to it. That is what we as a church are to do. We're to teach, but we're also to practice. We're to love and to pray. And to be men and women of the word. Discipleship happens first in our own hearts. It's just like revival. How often times do we say, oh, let's pray for revival. Well, let's remember, revival starts in the heart of an individual. It's all of our responsibility to respond to the gospel and to live it out. It's not going to happen in ferry until there's people in ferry that are willing to start. It's not going to happen in Michigan unless people in Michigan are living lives biblically and are able to communicate that to the lost. So let's help our young ones wrestle with wisdom. I want to turn for a minute. Mark, you hit on Lamentations this morning just for a little bit. That God's mercies are new every morning. So we're going to flip over Lamentations chapter 3. Let 
right in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We all know Jeremiah was, what was, what was Jeremiah's nickname? Anybody? The weeping prophet. Why? Why did he weep? What was that, Mike? He did. He had a heart for the people, for God's people. Did Jeremiah have an easy life? I'll tell you, there ain't a single Old Testament prophet that I would like to trade places with. I'll tell you what, they had a rough life, most of them. But, in the midst of Jeremiah's wrestling with the issues of his day, why was Israel being plundered? Why was Israel being under God's judgment? Well, for the same reasons we're talking about today. They're leaving the faith. They're walking away. They're washing their hands of God. They're acting like the culture they lived in and amongst. But in the midst of this, Jeremiah's heart is being poured out to God. He's lamenting Israel. He's lamenting his own spot amongst his people. And yet, he wrestles with wisdom. For what does he say in verse, we're going to start in verse 22, or actually verse 21. He says, this I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is how we are to help teach ourselves and our young ones to wrestle, to wrestle with wisdom. Yes, life is hard. Yes, there are times where we're going to feel we're up against a wall and there's no escape. Yet, we recall this to mind. Great are your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. Jeremiah had a heart for his Lord, but he was honest with him. Just as we see with David in the Psalms. David wasn't always, Lord, you're great. Lord, you're awesome. My life is wonderful. I'm the king of the world, right? David wrestled with bitter issues of the heart. David was so transparent with the Lord, and we have the blessing. Why? Because we can see that. Is that not the example to where to give to our children? Right? God said, who is a man after his own heart? David. Was David perfect? Far from it. David was a murderer. He was an adulterer. David had his best friend murdered so he could have his wife. Right? Yeah. You know what? There are our sins in all our lives. And yet God said he was a man after his own heart. Why? Because when he was, when he was um, confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet, that's one of the, one of the most beautiful psalms, is when Nathan rebuked David and put his finger out, you're the man. What did David do? David repented with bitterness of heart. You know what, Lanson? I'm not perfect. But neither are you. None of us are. But that's the point. We can all wrestle through life together. We can all encourage one another. We can all learn how to pray for one another. How do you know how to pray for somebody? How do you know how to pray for somebody, Lanson? Okay. When they ask for prayer, okay, so you got to do what? You got to communicate with them, right? You got to talk to somebody. How do I know how to pray for any of you unless I get to know you, right? Unless I ask you, hey, how are you guys doing? What are you struggling with? What things can we talk about? What things can we wrestle through together? You know what? You're wrestling with that? Hey, I went through that phase in my life. Rubbing elbows. Being the church together. Is the church beautiful? Yes. Because it's the image of Christ on earth. is one of the greatest blessings that God gave the church is unity amongst so many people that are so different, that have so many different walks of life that they've come from. There's unity. 
This is a beauty of God working in the midst of a wicked people. And we all are. And yet, God has redeemed us. He has called us righteous and he has commanded us to be holy. So let's help our young ones count the cost. Let's put to death the old man that's flesh and his desires. Yeah. Are there things that we still want to do that we probably shouldn't? Yes. But you know what? That's what putting away our desires is. It's, you know what? Yeah, I really like to live that way, but you know what? For Christ's sake, I can't. And it's turning away. Let's stop lowering the bar. And let's cry out, as in Mark 24, the father said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Yes. Do we have times of doubting? Yes. Do we stand upon God's word and God's word alone? Yes. That's how we get through those times of doubt. That's how we get through those times of struggle. And we do it together. The church is meant to live life together. We're not on an individual race. Yes, we are held accountable individually. But we are to live life together, encouraging and loving one another, helping each other to stand upon the truths of God's word and upon that alone. Let's pray.